It's back to the future with the return of a national party policy of years gone by. So what is social investment and does it work? For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast contains explicit language. He was the sort of guy he would never walk away from a fight. He would fight you to the death, you know. John had been hit a very violent, sudden blow to the head that completely incapacitated him. I just couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe that that's what had happened. He said, "One day I'm going to be killed off." John was as cocky as they come. I'm Martin Van Bainen. You are listening to the second episode of Heavy Metal, the podcast I've worked on with investigative journalist Blair Ensor about the unsolved murder of scrap metal dealer John Thomas Reynolds 22 years ago. Reynolds was beaten brutally around the head with a heavy object and found lying face down in a pool of blood in his Christchurch factory unit on the 28th of April 1996. In the first episode, we looked at Reynolds' movements on the day he died and the customers who came in to sell their scrap. Some of them would become suspects, but police didn't know if they were the only people who had come calling. And maybe selling scrap wasn't the business the killer had in mind. Reynolds' background provided a wealth of theories, and we'll get to those later. Police had a big team on the inquiry, and one development early on made them think they would have the homicide wrapped up quickly. As mentioned, Reynolds' white Mazda Bongo truck was parked outside the premises with the keys in the ignition. However, around quarter past one, it disappeared, and this put two likely lads in the frame. One was only 11 years old. The two boys, Toa Waihape, aged 15, and his much younger sidekick, Corey Stevenson, 11, were troubled youngsters who had left their boys' home earlier that day to have some fun. They weren't hard to track down. Toa, whose brother Peter would murder a Christchurch prostitute in 2005, was the driver. And after they stole the truck, they drove to Hoon Hay, where they dumped it at the suburb's rugby club. The boys were in custody within about six hours of Reynolds' body being found. When Blair caught up with Toa in Hamilton, he was adamant about his version of events. I'm just hoping you might be able to sort of run me through what you remember about that day in 1996. Toa has a speech impediment and the audio quality of the telephone interview could be better. So an actor reads his words. There's really not much to say. I've said everything that I can remember. Me and him were at the family home and we wanted to go out and basically have some fun. We went down the road the scrap metal yard's on and the only reason we took the vehicle was because I walked past and seen the door wide open, the keys in there. I didn't think nothing of it. So I ended up taking it for a joyride, not realising that at the same time I'd taken it, he was supposed to have got murdered. 
I thought that was quite funny because when I took that vehicle I didn't hear nothing, I didn't hear nobody and I didn't even see anything. They talked to Corey. Corey said to the cops I'd kill them. That was untrue. When I got into the vehicle and started it up, Corey was across the road looking at some books and whatnot. I said to the cops I had nothing to do with it and they could go hard. Fingerprint me, take my DNA and whatnot because I didn't even know there was anyone that got murdered. I swear on my mother and father's grave, I know for a fact that I didn't do it and I believe that to this day. I know what I've done, I'm not a cold-hearted murderer. We wrote to Corey Stevenson, who's serving time at Christchurch Men's Prison on unrelated offences, to see if he was interested in talking about the case. He did not respond. In the end, the boy's story that they had nothing to do with the murder was supported by the forensics. Security footage showed they were wearing the same clothes on their day of fun in town as the ones they had on when arrested, and there were no traces of blood on the clothes or in the stolen truck. Then head of the investigation, John Doyle, is sure the boys didn't kill Reynolds. On face value, when, when we first found that the truck had been stolen, and we knew who was in the truck very quickly, um, it, it started to look like they had to be the best suspects, obviously. But because they were found so soon, um, we were able to eliminate them from clothing, there was no blood, we were, able to, we were actually able to track their movements um, quite easily, as it turned out. So there, was so, there, were more, there were sightings of them all over the place, you know, because someone recognised them, you know, so in this truck and thought, boy, why are they in that truck and rang in? And um, so lots of stuff was going on. So, but no, they, were all, they all had to be carefully interviewed. We had to be very careful. Um, uh, and at the end of the day, we were absolutely satisfied they weren't the offenders. With Toa Waihape and Corey Stevenson out of the picture, the investigation was suddenly starting to look more complex. The killer left few clues, and no one came forward to say they had seen any part of the attack. Investigators could not ignore Reynolds' past, which threw up some intriguing possibilities. As the days went by, a much fuller picture of Reynolds' life emerged, as John Doyle explains. Well, obviously I'd never met John, but I, only, but I met his family, I met his brother, I met his, I think his daughter. Um, um, I mean, he's an enigma. His home is immaculate, but John worked in a, a difficult, rough, tough business. You know, he's the opposite of what you'd expect from from where he lived. Um, I'd say he was a, you know, I didn't know him, but I mean, clearly he was a, um, he was in the scrap metal trade. He was a he was a man that could sort of look after himself and um, probably had a. You know, he was, that's what he did. Yeah. And funnily enough, he was he was well liked um, around that that group that used to go there. Um, you know, like, like there was um, quite a feeling from a group of people in the what we would call on the fringe, who were really, um, uh, you know, really appreciative of John. They they knew that they knew that we were trying hard to find the murderer, and that that was coming back to us. A remarkable and disturbing tale, well-structured and told, it was both riveting and informative. Black Hands, the story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands. John Reynolds was born in Bolton near Manchester in the UK and had two siblings besides Michael. 
His parents, Tom and Mona, emigrated to Australia in 1960, settling in Melbourne, but found it too hot, and then moved to New Zealand, leaving John and his sister Frances, who were in their late teens, behind in Australia. In Britain, where his dad was a station master for the railways, Reynolds was a sociable teenager, was close to his mates, and often, it appears, in a bit of trouble. His mother dreaded knocks on the door, because it was often the police with her rowdy son in hand. Reynolds was close to his sister Frances, who was now 75 and living in Kumara on the west coast. He was a bit of a rat bag as a kid. Um, well, even as an adult, <laughs> even as an adult he was, I and mean, he was always out doing. He, he wasn't the kind of, even as a child, to sit around. He always had mates and he was out, you know, climbing trees or, you know, just doing the thing, naughty things that naughty boys do. But yeah, he was, he, he was no worse than any other kids around the neighbourhood. School was not for Reynolds, and once the family had moved to Australia, he went straight to work. He had a succession of hard, heavy, well-paid jobs, and he took his brother Michael on a two-year trek around Australia, working in places like gold mines and on oil rigs and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. In 1965, when he was about 24, he followed the family to Christchurch to work as a gardener for a hospital and later as a storeman for the railways, dabbling in scrap metal on the side. When he was made redundant in 1990, he worked for another scrap dealer and soon started his own scrap business in the building at 220 Hazelding Road, which he ended up buying and where he would be killed. Dixon McIver, who has been in the scrap metal industry for 45 years, gave Reynolds his start in the industry. John was one of those, like a squirrel, who used to wrap the rubbish bins at work and floor sweepings and anything he could scratch he would, he would grab and he would um, bring it down and sell it to us. And you didn't ask too many questions because it was always very small amounts and he would say this, this stuff just fell on the floor or some guy at work gave it to me or whatever. Somehow or other we had the opportunity to take over that yard in Hazeldine Road and how I appointed John to be in there I have no idea but he must have expressed an interest in doing it he came to me with this proposal that he and his brother wanted to buy the building and he would run the scrapyard out of there. And I thought, that's great, that gets me off the hook, I'm out of this thing. And, um, and I don't have to pay the lease or anything anymore. And it was a good way of me walking away from something that hadn't turned out to be that flash. Reynolds was the new boy on the block, but people soon realised he had to be taken seriously. It was certainly a change from his railways job, and he settled in for the long haul. He could always look back on plenty of colourful experiences, as his brother Michael attests. He, he was shot, yeah, he was, um, they were just fooling around. That was an accident, that was in Australia too, shot through the stomach. Oh, I wasn't there, I just know that... Um, Got shot, the bullet went in and they had to operate from the back to get it out because it's sort of gone three quarters of the way through or something. 
but I don't know too much about that. I was quite young at that stage. The other incident was in, in um, Australia. John had a house and my sister and her husband and kids lived in the house. And the husband was a, he was a layabout, he was hopeless. And brother kicked him out one day, kicked him out. And he came back that night and set the house on fire. And, he, and then he, this guy, Stanley was his name, he panicked a wee bit. He went up the, f the street and rang the fire brigade. So they come and got it out before it did too much damage. It just burned one wall down. This is one of the things that I mentioned to the police at the time because he could have well come back or one of, he could have had more kids than one of his because he went to prison for that, obviously. So I think they looked at all these things. I don't know how closely. Um, but subsequently I found out that that guy, Stanley, died quite young. There was one incident in Christchurch in 1974 that even in Reynolds' trouble-prone past stands out. It could have landed him in jail for a long time. It occurred at the Addington Railway workshops where Reynolds worked before going into the scrap metal business. He and a Samoan workmate called Tagoli's Tuia were playing cards with another worker in the canteen during Smoko when Reynolds accused Tuia of cheating. They went out to the yard to settle it man to man and in the fight Tuia grabbed a rock and hit Reynolds in the mouth cutting his lip and breaking his front teeth. Reynolds then kicked Tuia on the ground a number of times breaking one of his ribs. But that wasn't the worst of it. Tuia had an enlarged heart twice the normal size and as a result of the fight had a heart attack, dying on the ground in the yard. Reynolds was initially charged with assault causing grievous bodily harm, but the charge was reduced to common assault, for which he was fined $750 and given six months to pay. Reynolds' daughter Lara remembers her father coming home after the death in the railway yards. I remember being in my mum, with my mum in the bedroom and my dad coming in, um, in the doorway and I looked up at him and, and he was slightly, from what I can remember, maybe slightly slumped and, and I looked up, his front teeth had gone and uh, yeah, they'd been bashed out. Yeah, and he looked slightly scratched and bruised. Very similar to how I saw him when he was lying in his casket. Yeah, except he had a broken nose in the casket. I mean, I'm not proud of that that sort of happened, and it's been, I mean, I think my dad learnt a lot from that. That is not something that my father was in any way, shape or form proud of. He, he, he was not happy about it, he was very hurt by it. The last thing that my dad ever wanted to do was to take someone else's life. He, the Samoan guy just picked the wrong dude to, 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 to call out because my dad was very capable of looking after himself and he was scared of nothing and no one. The series is beautifully crafted and a compelling listen. A man disappears with no crime scene, no weapon and no body. How could his longtime friend be arrested and charged with murder? The trial. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Trial. 
very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. Blair recently tracked down Tuya's eldest son David, who wasn't even aware Reynolds had been involved in his father's death. David says his mother Lamali, who died about 20 years ago, banned him and his siblings from playing cards because she wanted nothing similar to happen to anyone else in the family. She was a strong woman and would not have tolerated any talk of revenge because it was contrary to her Christian beliefs. David told Blair his father was a very violent man and things had happened in the family that nowadays would land someone in jail. He was sure no one connected to the family was involved in Reynolds' death. If a confident toughness was one defining characteristic of Reynolds' personality, another was a strong interest in making money, even with his hobbies. He was an avid collector of antique bottles, which often involved trips away digging up bottles left in old domestic dumps. In the 70s, Reynolds opened a shop selling antique bottles and also sold bottles of a more modern vintage, as his collecting buddy Nigel Harrison remembers. Lovely guy. He'd crack you up. He'd go to the show. He'd buy up. He would advertise to buy things all the time, you know, old postcard books, uh, and then on sell them. His big thing was buying up miniatures, you know, full miniatures. And uh, he would go to a bottle show, and you weren't meant, you, unless you had a liquor license, you should, should have been selling them. But he'd have his table covered. So he'd be emptying them, he'd be making up all these cocktails and sit there all day drinking, emptying these miniatures, you know. But he's, he had a great sense of humour and he was, he, was a, he was a very, very, you know, great guy to have around. Harrison got to know Reynolds in the early 70s. I probably knew John as well or better than anyone outside of his family did uh, because of the amount of time we spent out digging holes together and chatting. I guess you were looking for all these bottles and whatever else. I mean, it was, yep. was that a, his number one passion outside of scrap metal? Absolutely, absolutely. But for John, it was always a buck in it too, you know. During one of their trips... Reynolds told Harrison an odd story, which has always haunted him. <clears throat> Bricks would bounce off John, but you know he, in the bit that he he confided in me when we were going to a show, it was a national show. We were on the ferry. I can remember it's one of those moments when, like, when uh, <clears throat> Princess Di died. You know exactly where you were. <clears throat> but he, he he said to me, he said, he said one day I'm going to be killed off, and uh, and he said that you know he had history back in. England. He wasn't the sort of guy to make things up, and he, he said he went to Australia, um, and he did a lot of work, sort of, uh, I don't know whether it was bouncing and or stuff, but he said he took some bullets and got shot, and he showed me the bullet holes, the bullet scars, and he got he said he was re being retired out here, and he get these easy money delivered to him every every month in an envelope, and it was the weirdest damn story, and I thought, oh, you know. This is a little bit crazy, you know. Do I need to know this? What's going on? But when he suddenly got murdered, it, it just, it just, you know, it just rocked through me. I mean, it was a hell of a thing for him to tell me, and then subsequently, you know, five or six later, five or six years later, he's dead. Harrison doesn't know quite what to make of the story, but if you were told that in confidence, and it was a confidence thing, he said, "Look, I need to share this with someone." 
and I don't think he just told anyone else. And, I, and, and if, it's, if someone is making up stories about <coughs> interesting past and lives and things like that, they, they share it a bit more than that. You know, this was a, a very personal sort of a um, discussion I had with him. Perhaps Reynolds was just pulling Harrison's leg, but he had Harrison worried. The answer to the murder was probably a lot simpler and more obvious. Reynolds dealt with a lot of junkies and down-and-outs hungry for cash, so the police largely concentrated on that side of his business. I used to do morphine back then, and I was probably the only female Christchurch selling scrap metal and drive trucks around. He bought everything off me, and it was a well-known fact for the cops. Always cash. Yeah. Everybody, every crook in Christchurch, and that, that was his biggest downfall. That was Tania Gorry, a name you will hear again later in the podcast. Leah and I talked to her recently, outside her front door in a Christchurch street. My scrap was going in shipping containers straight out. John was as crooked as they come. Was he? Yeah. But the thing is, what made me think, and the, the clues, he still had money on him. Yeah. A junkie wouldn't leave anybody with yeah. money on. That's all I'm going to say. I'm sorry, and I'm going now. Tania was referring to the fact that Reynolds still had $2,200 in the pocket of his shirt when he was found dead in his factory unit. If robbery was the motive for the murder, it was strange he still had the cash on him. Earlier in the day, he had paid a supplier from a wad of notes in his shirt pocket but it's possible he also had another wad of notes in his trouser pocket, perhaps for the washing machine he and Susan were to buy later. As we have heard, Reynolds also kept cash in a plastic tray in a drawer in his office desk, and some smears of blood matching Reynolds' blood type were found on the desk around the drawer. The blood looked fresh and may have been left by the killer. When police arrived, the tray was gone. As we heard in episode one, Reynolds was not shy about flashing his cash. Scrap dealer Steve Cottle, who bought a lot of scrap from Reynolds, wondered if this was wise. He was, he could be quite rash, uh, bulgy, um, quite flamboyant with his money around people he probably shouldn't have been. Um, I've seen him with somebody coming in and they've got five or ten dollars worth of scrap and he pulled a roll of 50s out of his pocket and go, oh, that's not for you, this is your one five dollars, you know. And I always thought, yeah, probably not a good thing to do, especially when you're on your own most of the time. You know, but never thought anything else of it until after, you know, he got killed. Reynolds' brother Michael worried about his brother's casual attitude to his personal safety. Robberies were not uncommon in the industry. In the workshop, he used to be up the back, he had a guillotine, and he always had his back to the door. I said, you should w turn the other way around. Some bugger could come up behind you and hit, you would never know. He said, ah, oh, no, 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 I'm too fucking tough for that, you know. We've already mentioned Ben Johnson, who called in to see Reynolds just before he closed on the day of his murder. In his statement to the police, Ben talked of a strange ritual that he and Reynolds had with the cash. An actor reads from his statement. He had a heap of money in his hand when I first went in there. He had bundles of $50 notes folded in half. There were thick bundles of 50s, 
probably about $500 in each bundle and about four or five bundles of $20 notes folded on top of the 50s. I've never touched the money this time. He has often let me touch his bundles of cash. An incredible podcast, brilliantly put together and narrated. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. Today on Newsable, it's back to the future with the return of a national party policy of years gone by. So what is social investment and does it work? Plus, why are we all so obsessed with the TV show Baby Reindeer and its Eurovision finals weekend and there are some absolute bops you simply must hear. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. But was Tania Gori right about Reynolds' dodgy reputation? We asked some other scrap dealers who knew him and some of his less reputable suppliers. Alison Bainton, who you will recall was one of Reynolds' customers from the last episode, says the question of their scrap's origin was kept deliberately murky. Did John ever ask any questions? No, no questions asked, no story, no, no lies told. He always used to take our number plate of the car and and you know what we had and that sort of thing. So, but I knew he got, I know he got rid of it pretty quick. Mike Rollo, a former police officer, has been in the industry for forty years and helped the Reynolds family tidy up his affairs after his death. What was the industry like back then? As a whole, it was. Interesting, there were some interesting characters around the town at the time, uh, quite a few crooks. Um, the police were doing a pretty good job, but we certainly had some hard cases in our yard as well. You couldn't really police who was coming in, but you had to take a decent look at the scrap and uh, just try and educate a guess as to whether it had been got legitimately or otherwise. There's probably the good ones and the, and the bad ones around town. Um, I guess I've heard a bit of stuff around the place that John was taking a bit of hot scrap and he was kind of seen as a bit of a soft touch in terms of what uh, crooks could get away with going through there. Uh, he was relatively new on the scene at that stage, so uh, our family business had been around since uh, probably the late 40s, so uh, my father was a president of Rotary and he had quite high morals, and uh, with, especially with who he, he would and wouldn't deal with at the time. Um, yeah, so Dad was sort of in charge, and he said, "No, we won't, we won't be dealing with uh, with John." So that's how it was until after he passed away. Steve Cottle, who we heard from earlier, is less judgmental. And I mean, we're all the same, you know. Everybody dealt with, I suppose you call them dodgy people, but um, yeah, never really thought about it twice, you know. There was a the sort of the thing in the scrap metal then was if you don't buy it, someone else will. So, you know, you never really turned anyone away. So there was no real checks and balances in place around who you took? Not really. Not really, no. It was it was sort of left up to you, you know, um, as the buyer. And you were more or less expected to go and get your quota a day. And um, pretty much where that came from was up to you. If you didn't feel safe or you thought it was dodgy, you refused it. But there wasn't a lot refused. Can you sort of describe some of the 
the people that would come in? All walks of life. Um, you, you could get somebody coming in a, in a Beamer with a bootload of stuff to somebody on a push bike with a, uh, a jockey's training, you know, horse training thing on the back. Um, so it can be anybody, anybody. And you, you don't know where they're getting it from. We're not police. We can ask the question, but we can only take their answer as it being right. When you say there are unsavoury types, though... There are, there are, yeah. yeah. You get them coming in, and um, they're high on drugs. And we have kicked people out of the yard for being high, and they get quite nasty. Um, or they don't think they're getting enough money for the stuff they're bringing in, and they can get quite stroppy about it. The vital question for investigators was whether Reynolds knew the killer. His brother Michael believes Reynolds would not have allowed a stranger to enter the building and turn his back on someone he thought of as a possible threat. So what's happened is he's closed the big door. He's shutting up shop, obviously. There's a big, big roller door, normal big roller door, with a small door about that size in the middle of it that you get in that. So he's closed up the big door because his keys were in the truck, that's why the boys stole it. He's ready to go, the keys are in the truck, he's ready to go. And this guy's obviously pulled up with some scrap. So he's gone inside with him and he's in front of the scales and this guy must be behind him and he's weighing the stuff and this guy's hit him from behind with the metal bars, I mean, according to the police. So that's it's somebody he's known to let him in and also to be not looking at him, to be alone, but stand behind him with the door shut and everything. So it's somebody, a regular customer, that's, that's done it. It's certainly not a random... It's somebody he knew for that to happen like that, otherwise he wouldn't be letting him in, he wouldn't be turning his back on him. Let's just walk through the scene again to see what it can tell us. Many of these details have never been revealed publicly. Reynolds was found about five metres in from the roller door of the factory unit near a set of scales for weighing scrap. Police think he was probably hit first from behind and then bashed around his head and on his right shoulder with a blunt instrument, probably a piece of heavy metal. His skull was smashed in and his face was badly bruised. Some of the damage appears to have been done while Reynolds was already incapacitated and lying on the floor. He was wearing a checked work shirt, jeans and brown boots. His body was found face down and his waybook and pen were lying on the concrete floor next to his body. Was he then just about to fill in the killer's name in the waybook before he was bashed? Police think Reynolds might have initially fallen on his back with the killer turning him over in a frantic search for cash. As already mentioned, Reynolds still had on him the $2,200 cash, but that didn't mean there hadn't been a robbery. Perhaps the culprit had found another wad of cash in Reynolds' trouser pockets and missed the cash in his shirt pocket. Police were getting a lot of information about possible candidates from the various networks associated with the scrap metal trade. The industry was rife with speculation about who had killed Reynolds.
scrap dealer Mike Rollo didn't buy the robbery theory as much as others. I sort of formed an impression earlier on that it might have been a hit job. Rather than a robbery? Yeah. Why do you say that? Just my suspicious nature, I guess. Dixon McIver is still mystified by the murder. How he wound up getting killed, I have no idea. I, I just didn't realise that he must have had... Yeah, I must, I must have either pissed somebody off to a large degree or, and I'm sure I wasn't saying this to you, but I am, I was, I was interviewed by a detective, a young woman, um, and it turned out after she'd been there about a half an hour that they were actually looking at me as a suspect because someone had told them that I had killed John. Well, I think that she worked out after she'd seen me for about half an hour that I'd probably have trouble swatting a fly, let alone killing somebody, but she still wanted to, to go through it with me. But I always remember her saying that it would come up one day that, that they probably already knew who had done it, but it would come up one day as a deathbed confession. And that always intrigued me, and I sort of, I think the fairy tale image and me sort of thought this is pretty cool. <laughs> In the next episode of Heavy Metal, we'll look at two people who after police had whittled down the possible culprits became the main focus of the investigation. We have already met one. I couldn't guarantee where he was that day and I'd lied to cover for it. If you want to get in touch with the Heavy Metal team, please email heavymetal at stuff.co.nz. To subscribe and download more episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. Heavy Metal was researched, written and presented by Blair Ensor and me, Martin Van Banen. Recording was thanks to the Broadcasting School at ARA and editing was by Alex Liu. Our executive producer was Catherine Goldsworthy. For more on the John Reynolds story, visit stuff.co.nz forward slash heavy hyphen metal. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing. The story of the most divisive murder case in New Zealand's history. Black Hands. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Black Hands.